Holy Spirit, come and move in power in this place that our eyes might be open to those areas of our life that you would shine your holy night light. And Lord, that you would draw us close to you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Uh, this morning's gospel reason, uh, this morning's gospel reading, uh, from my perspective, is actually a little bit uh, crazy uh, to me. Uh, it seems very odd that Peter would have the nerve to pull Jesus aside and rebuke him. Imagine the God of the universe in human flesh is conveying to you not only a great truth, but the very truth that leads to salvation. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And Peter says, whoa, 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 whoa. He interrupts him, pulls Jesus in front of everybody, pulls Jesus aside and tells him, you don't mean these things. You shouldn't say such things. Well, how can Peter do such a thing? Oh, Peter thought that he knew better than Jesus. Jesus rebukes Peter in turn by saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. We can admit that Peter was out of line and even full of hubris. But for Jesus to say, get behind me, Satan, is that a step too far? I mean, that sounds like overstatement. Even in our house, we say all the time, get behind me, Satan, uh, just because it sounds uh, so extreme uh, that how could it be taken seriously? And yet here, Jesus means it. And it sounds in Mark's gospel as if Jesus immediately turns the subject to another matter. Uh, this call to discipleship. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life must first lose it. And whoever uh, will lose his life will save it in, in order uh, to follow after me. But what Jesus is actually saying there is in direct response to Peter's desire that Jesus not talk about such things. Surely you will not die in such a way, Jesus. Well, this morning, Jesus, as he did for Peter so many years ago, has a word for people who think that they know better. It's easy for us to shake our heads at Peter and say, oh, Peter. Or what a typical Peter move. I mean, this uh, rebuking of Jesus is right on the heels of Jesus taking his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi, where they're surrounded by all of these idols carved in niches at the headwaters of the Jordan River. And Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the, the one who is to come and rescue his people. Peter aces the test, but seemingly is failing the course. 
Because immediately on the heels of this declaration, he rebukes Jesus and prompts Jesus to rebuke him in turn and say, get behind me, Satan. And before we get too high up on our holy horse and think, oh, this is just typical Peter, all of us at some point in our lives, if not more often than not, think that we know better than Jesus. When Jesus is talking about this call to discipleship, what he's simply doing is acknowledging the fact, which was echoed by Bob Dylan, which is, you've got to serve somebody. You've got to serve somebody. Jesus tells us that one way or another, we're going to lose our lives. But the question is, what or who are we going to lose our lives to? What are we going to give our lives over to? Now, the biblical word for this is idolatry. Uh, I've told this story before, but I think it's so funny because it's the expense of my former rector, uh, who I worked for in Buford. But Jeff Miller, the rector there, is from Pittsburgh, and Frank Limehouse was the rector at the time, and Jeff came in late to a little pre-party before dinner, and everybody was sitting around the room uh, in rapt attention to Fitzsimmons Allison, the retired bishop of South Carolina, just hanging on every word. Now, Jeff is from Pittsburgh, and Fitz is from Columbia. South Carolina, and Fitz has this wonderful accent, which at some, time, some points is hard to discern uh, what exactly is he saying, and so Jeff was a little bit alarmed to hear Fitz declare that the number one problem in the world is idolatry, and Jeff thought, did I hear that right? But everybody was nodding their head in agreement, and Jeff thought, well, Fitz would know better, and he said it again, that the single greatest problem that we have in the world is idolatry. Well, after they moved on to dinner, Chris, uh, Kristen and his wife was walking along and Jeff grabbed her and said, what does Fitz have against the Dollar Tree over by the Walmart? And she said, idolatry, you fool, idolatry. Well, uh, Fitz is right, the Bible's right, that uh, Calvin's right when he said that our hearts are veritable idol factories, that when it comes to our own lives, uh, control is the watchword. And we'll try to find anything, any medium, in order to get some semblance of control on our lives. And there are often times where we will acknowledge with our minds, Jesus, I know you know what you're doing, but I'm going to take plan B. That's idolatry. The psalmist writes in Psalm 115, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Now, none of us, I would imagine, have little idols set up in our home, a little shrine where you walk in at Christmas time and you say, hey, there's our crest set and our idol set. Uh, you probably don't have that. Uh, in fact, in our day and age, what we're more likely to do are to take things that God has given us as gifts, very good things, and to corrupt them and to turn them uh, into idols. 
The thing about an idol is we think, well, this is something that is going to make my life better, more complete, uh, more fulfilled, and we think that we can control them. Uh, but before we know it, just when we think that we have a hold of them, it turns out that they have a hold of us and we become like them. We're actually not able to see things as they are. We're not able to speak the truth as it is. We're not even able to hear uh, that which would be of comfort and of truth to us. We're not able to perceive what's really going on around me, around you, uh, because we have become like the thing that we worship. Uh, William Temple, who was Archbishop of Canterbury during World War II, had what he called the nightmare test. And he said, if you want to get an idea of what it is that you worship, what it is you're giving your life over to, think about if you were to lose something in your life, if you were to lose it, and your life would come crashing down, it would fall apart. It would be the absolute worst possible nightmare. Prestige, acceptance, relationships, validation, achievement. But to get real specific... I know what my idol is, or at least one of them, my children. Now with this nightmare test, that's not to say, of course it would be a total awful disaster if anything happened to my children and they were taken away, if they were to perish. That's not what that test is sought to prove. But what I've noticed uh, with my children, I used to make fun of helicopter parents, and then I found out I'm a snowplow parent. I will absolutely crash through anything that gets in the way. And I don't think that my children are any more gifted than anyone else. But while your children are on the ball field with them, they're in black and white and mine are in technicolor. And there's nothing that any of us wouldn't do for our children, but I was convicted uh, last fall. The Washington Post ran a column about helicopter parenting, and it caused a firestorm of response, and I thought it was interesting. In the Boston Globe, it said this. At Boston University, one father was so upset over his daughter's A-minus final grade that he called the professor to complain, and then the department chair, and then the academic dean. At Boston College, parents have residential life staffers to complain about minor roommate issues. At Simmons, school officials have fielded parental concerns about noise, gluten-free diets, food allergies. One mother called to request more variety on the salad bar. Quote, this is not how all parents of college students behave, says Sarah Neal, dean of students at Simmons. She continues, but there has been a real shift in the extent to which parents are involved and invested in the lives of their students. Close quote. Everyone has heard of parents who do their grade schooler science project or are overly involved in their kids' social lives. But the infamous helicopter parents hovering over their younger children are now transitioning into, this is me, so-called snowplow parents trying to smooth the path for their kids even after they've started college. The article goes on to even talk about parents who are showing up at their children's job interviews after they graduate college. And then parents responding to the interviewers in the companies after their children don't get the job and telling them that they've made the worst mistake in the history of the world. 
even though mine are little, I can already see myself living vicariously through my children. Those who make them become like them. So do all who put their trust in them. And for me to think that I need to do so many things in order to control my children. I mean, for instance, one of them takes Mandarin lessons every single week. I, I get, she'll be able to order at Chen Express faster than anybody else. Shangri-La, here we come. And yet, uh, why do we do Because we think if they don't learn Mandarin at five years old, they're doomed in their career. And so I bought into this idea that I need to control my children in such a way uh, that I have to do all of these things and uh, their falling and stumbling somehow reflects upon me. The good and wonderful gift of children. When I got out of college, I took a job which required a lot of travel, and I found myself on the road eating at Cracker Barrel a lot. And I was there one day with one of my colleagues, and what we noticed uh, after a number of meals at Cracker Barrel uh, is you would see a husband and a wife sitting across the table from one another, and the entire meal, they wouldn't say a word to one another. And we began to call this Cracker Barrel Syndrome. And at first we thought, look at how they love one another. They love each other so much that uh, they don't even have to say anything to one another. And then I got married. And what? And after talking to some people, because in Beaufort, South Carolina, where we were before, there are lots of art galleries that have been opened up. Why? Because they get retired and then the husband and wife say, we need to find hobbies. And then they go and, and open up art galleries. But after talking to some people, uh, what they said is that the wife had sunk her life so much into the children that that became her identity. And the husband sunk his life so much in his job that that became his identity. And when he retired and the kids left home and the husband and the wife were together again, what they realized is they had lived parallel lives. And they looked at one another with some startled astonishment, thinking, who are we? Do, do, I, do I know who you are anymore? Do I have a, an identity apart from my job, an identity apart from my children? Who are we as a couple? Now, it may be that this happens to you at Cracker Barrel, but you really do love one another. Lauren once asked me, what do you want in life? And I responded very honestly, just to be left alone. <laughs> right now, just to be left alone. So it may be that. Uh, it may be that. But all of us struggle with life of these good and wonderful things that God gives us, and yet find ourselves turning them into idols. We think that they are a means to an end, but they get a hold of us, and we give our lives over to them, and they become the end in and of themselves. Why? Because we all think we know better. But even if we can get to a point where we realize that the idols of our lives, our attempts to be in control, are failing, and we want out, we may let go of them, but we find that it's hard to get them to let go of us. What is needed in order for us to live is, yes, to die to oneself, to say, I don't have control over my life. Control is a myth. And when I'm in charge, I tend to make a mess of things. But we know that that's not enough. 
In order to gain our own lives, according to Jesus, it must cost the life of another. Looking again at the start of our gospel reading this morning, Jesus began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Must? Yes. Must suffer. Must be rejected. Must be killed. Must be raised. Why? In order that we might live and be saved even from ourselves. In spite of the fact that our hearts cry out, certainly not, Lord. Say it isn't so. We pray that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we might find life and life more abundantly. That we would be surprised by God's grace and mercy. And in His mercy, He might crush those idols in our lives that we may be able to see and hear and perceive that which is good for Him. Good news from Jesus Christ, who died for idolaters. Amen.